This Choir Cast podcast episode is brought to you by Maria Francesca French, author of the newly released book, Safer Than the Known Way, A Post-Christian Journey. It's an exploration of the promise of faith from a post-Christian perspective. What does it mean to speak beyond binaries of theism and atheism, conservative and liberal fact and fiction? Why might a new type of theological imagination, one that defies categories in comparison with the challenge actual deconstruction offers, be all that is next? Here you will find a compelling read of story and personal journey with strong scholarship and deep theology, significant and transformational thought that has lived in the ivory tower for too long but made accessible and resonant. Read along as the tables are turned, head towards a horizon with no line, and follow a compass that doesn't point north. Prepare to be beckoned by ghosts and travel a path unknown, because to go out into the elegant chaos of all that might be waiting for us after Christianity, while still engaging in meaningful faith, is safer than all that might be considered certain. If you have moved past traditional notions of God, beyond mechanisms of belief, and find yourself relentlessly curious about what might be next, this book is for you. This is more in my new book, Safer Than the Known Way, A Post-Christian Journey, out now. Hey, this is Jason Elam with the Messy Spirituality Podcast, and I just can't seem to get enough of Second Cup with Keith. It's theological caffeine for my brain. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Second Cup with Keith. I'm your host, Keith Giles. I am the author of the best-selling Jesus Un series, a seven-part series of books that deal with different aspects of the deconstruction and reconstruction process, including the most recently released Jesus Unarmed, How the Prince of Peace Disarms Our Violence. All of the books are available on Amazon, in Kindle, and in print, and most of them are on audio. My most recent book, Audio, will be available in a few months. So we'll be watching for that. And I want to welcome you back again to Second Cup with Keith. In this episode, we're going to deal with a specific doctrine called penal substitutionary atonement theory. Now, a lot of Christians that I talk to don't really understand that term. Similar to when I've talked about sort of the end times, when I talked about, and actually in our previous episode, when I talked about dispensationalism and end times rapture theory and John Nelson Darby, a lot of Christians who believe that view that end times rapture view, believe it, but they just never heard it called dispensational theology. And so in a similar way, a lot of Christians, when you use the phrase penal substitutionary atonement theory, they don't know that term, but when you describe what it is, they say, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I was told, or that's what I believe, which makes it even more difficult to have the conversation really at all. So in my book, Jesus Unforsaken, the subtitle is Substituting Divine Wrath with Unrelenting Love. I did my best to sort of explain what penal substitutionary atonement theory is and what it isn't, because we'll see in a second why it's important to, <laughs> to talk about what it isn't, but to also then just talk about the atonement in general. Essentially, penal substitutionary atonement is a theory of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the atonement of Christ on the cross. And it's sort of trying to make sense of what was happening on the cross. Now, for a lot of Christians, when you explain sort of what penal substitutionary atonement theory is about, they'll say, oh yeah, I believe that, or I know that, because most of us have been taught that penal substitutionary atonement theory is the gospel. If you have listened to episode two of Second Cup with Keith, I did an entire episode on what is the gospel and what isn't the gospel. And in that episode, I did touch on this a little bit about how a lot of Christians are taught that the gospel is found in 1 Corinthians 15 rather than 
from the mouth of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what Jesus tells us the good news is, and how that's a mistake. And so I don't want to go over that ground again, because I already covered it in episode two. If you haven't heard that, or you need to refresh your memory, I recommend going back and listening to episode two of Second Cup with Keith, where I go through that in a lot of more detail. So in this episode, what I want to do is just focus on the atonement itself. So here's what people don't realize when we talk about penal substitutionary atonement theory, which I guess I probably should define it before we go much further. In essence, penal substitutionary atonement theory rests on a few assumptions. It rests on one assumption that God is a wrath, a God of wrath, that God's reaction to our sinfulness is wrath, that his wrath is poured out on us because of our sin. So God's primary response to our sin is wrath. We deserve this punishment the, to suffer the wrath and the punishment of God. And so Jesus comes and sort of takes the bullet for us. In other words, he suffers the wrath of the Father in our place. This is the substitutionary part of it, the penal meaning punishment. He's our substitute for the punishment that we deserve. And then once Jesus suffers the wrath and the punishment intended for us that we rightly deserve, that because of that, now the anger of God is appeased and we can be forgiven. And so again, many Christians believe this. They think this is the gospel. They're actually told, here's the gospel, and it's what I just said. Now, penal substitutionary atonement theory is a theory. First of all, it's something that didn't come around until the 1500s. So this is why I'm challenging the idea that this would be the gospel, because how could it be the gospel if it isn't something that anybody believed until the 1500s? Did the gospel come to us through John Calvin? No. Did the gospel come to us through the Apostle Paul? Not primarily, no. It came to us from Jesus, and it's found in the Gospels. And so the thing we need to understand about penal substitutionary atonement theory, again, is it's a theory. It is in a long line of other theories of the atonement. So historically, you had many other atonement theories that showed up long before, like six or seven of them, before Calvin came up with penal substitution. So we had the recapitulation theory. Origen was one of the people that put that theory of the atonement forward. There's ransom theory. Irenaeus was one of the early church fathers who suggested that theory. There was the Christus Victor theory, which is similar to the ransom theory, just the idea that what was happening on the cross was Jesus gaining victory over sin and death. Anselm came up with the satisfaction theory in 1095 AD. Then we had the moral influence theory by a guy named Abelard. There's the moral example theory of the atonement, which is also around the 1500s. And then, of course, the one we all know in much more, much greater detail, which is the penal substitutionary atonement theory, which has of late, unfortunately, been transformed into the gospel message itself. So again, I've always said that to have a conversation about penal substitutionary atonement theory is so challenging. It's so difficult. There's a reason why this was like the sixth book in my seven-part series. I saved it to the end of the series, frankly, because I think of all the other topics that I deal with in my Jesus on Book series, this topic of the atonement, it's just so complicated and difficult to talk about, as you will see as we're moving forward here. Because when you start pulling on one thread, it creates so many other questions and assumptions that you have to then stop and deal with that before you can move forward. And it feels like it's just very, very difficult to get through a conversation about rethinking the atonement because we have so many assumptions built into the theory. As I said, one of those assumptions is that God is a God of wrath, that he's angry, that his primary response to our sin is wrath and anger. 
Now, I would challenge that, and in my book, Jesus and Forsaken, I, I go through and, and demonstrate the fact that there are no scriptures that teach that God's primary response to our sin is wrath or anger. Actually, what we see as God's response is a desire to turn to us, to heal us, to restore us, that God is a God of restorative justice. It doesn't mean that there's no justice. It means that God's justice doesn't look like revenge. And so God's primary response is not wrath and anger. God's primary response as a loving father is to turn and heal and restore us. And that's consistent all through Old and New Testament scriptures. Another assumption is that our sins separate us from God. That's one of the things we talked about in episode four of this podcast. It was one of the three lies that we believe is this idea that our sins are separating us from God. And again, when we go and look at the maybe two or possibly three scriptures in the Bible that seem to suggest such a thing, if we just keep on reading those passages, what we'll see is, in fact, that these are statements or assumptions that might appear at the beginning of a chapter or a text, but as we continue to read, the prophet or the author of that text comes to the opposite conclusion, that in fact, our sins do not separate us from God. Our sins are not cause for God to hide his face from us, because if we continue to read that same passage, and a few verses later, the author of that passage, the same passage, will tell us that God looked, and God saw, and God reached out, and God came to us, and God restored us. And so it is not the case, it is not the case, that our sins separate us from God. Primarily, God's response to sin, especially as we see in the example of Jesus, who said, if you want to know what the Father is like, look at me, is that God's response to sin is forgiveness. Jesus forgives sins constantly. In fact, it's usually the first thing out of his mouth when a person walks up to him. They don't confess their sins. They don't ask for forgiveness. They just stand in Jesus' presence, and his first words are, your sins are forgiven you. And then he'll ask them, what would you like for me to do for you? And then he may heal them or perform some miracle in their presence. But the forgiveness that Jesus offers is immediate, instantaneous, and automatic. And we see that consistently throughout the life of Jesus, all the way up to the cross itself, when as he is being nailed to the cross by unbelieving pagan Roman soldiers, as a result of some scapegoating that's going on from the Jewish religious authorities, and of course the Roman authorities, his statement is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so again, the response we see is God's automatic forgiveness. The other problem with penal substitutionary atonement theory, to be quite honest, is the picture that it paints for us of who God is, the character and the nature and the heart of God. When we look at penal substitutionary atonement theory, what we see is a God, again, who looks a lot more like Molech, looks more a lot more like a, a volcano God or some pagan deity. And in fact, you know, in my book, Jesus Unforsaken, I actually have a little graph where I list side by side the characteristics of a pagan volcano God side by side with what John Calvin tells us about God in his penal substitutionary atonement theory. The pagan or the volcano God is angry. Calvin's God is full of wrath. The pagan God, the volcano God, requires a sacrifice of something innocent, right? And Calvin's God demands the shedding of blood to forgive sins before forgiveness can happen. The pagan volcano God prefers that that sacrifice be a human sacrifice. John Calvin's God also sees that humans are deserving of death. All humans are deserving only of death. The pagan volcano God requires that that sacrifice, that human sacrifice, be a virgin. And Calvin's God is, of course, sinless. And most Christians would say, since he didn't get married, that he was a virgin. So Jesus is a virgin child sacrifice. 
And then the pagan volcano god is only appeased after the innocent child, virgin, is sacrificed. And the same is true of Calvin's God, that the death of Jesus is the only thing that turns away God's wrath. Now, again, the problem with this theory, it makes God identical to Molech or Baal, who demands this virgin child sacrifice before he can love us or forgive us. That is not consistent with who God is in the even in the Old Testament, much less in the in the New Testament, what we see looking at Jesus. Now, I know when I say that, immediately when I say that, most of us Christians, a bunch of verses pop into our head, but what about this verse and what about that verse? And, and I'm going to do my best to cover at least the majority of the, the main ones that might be popping into your head as I'm speaking right now. But again, the book covers it in much greater detail. But essentially, you know, penal substitutionary atonement theory, if we really think about it, here's what it's saying. It's saying that God sacrificed himself to himself to appease himself and save us from himself so that now we can be worthy of love and forgiveness. That should sound a little crazy to you. Like, wait a minute, what? Do I really believe that God sacrificed himself to himself to appease himself and save us from himself? Well, again, if we stopped and took each of those statements one at a time, and began to look for scriptural evidence to support any of those statements in what of what I just said, what we would find is that no, no, no. God did not sacrifice himself to appease himself and save us from himself. That that is not the case. And so it it definitely causes us to realize that we need to rethink this whole idea of the atonement. What is going on? And what do we really believe about God? And what's going on on the cross? Again, what we see when we look at the scriptures is that God's primary response to sin is not wrath. That punishment is not the way God deals with our sin. And in fact, what we see in scripture is that, again, even in the Old Testament, our sinfulness is often described as a wound, as a, as a disease, as a sickness. And any good parent knows that when your child is sick, you do not beat your child until they get better right? You don't punish your child for being sick. You don't punish your child for contracting a disease. No. If you are a loving parent, what you do is you you heal, right? You restore, you strengthen your child. You work to remove the disease. If you have any quote-unquote wrath, it would be for the disease that is making your child sick, but not ever for your child, right? So it helps, I think, to think of it in these in these terms. I think, again, one of the verses that probably jumps into your head is one that I think probably jumps into my head quite often is Hebrews 10. When I say something like, God doesn't require the shedding of blood before he can forgive us, someone might decide, well, Keith, hold on, what about Hebrews 10, where it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Actually, I take that back. Uh, that's actually in Hebrews chapter 9. But it, we need to start in 9 and move into chapter 10, to, I think, to really understand what's being said in Hebrews. And in fact, it's a misunderstanding of Hebrews that really contributes, I think, to our misunderstanding of this idea of sacrifice and how it really plays into what's happening on the cross and what Jesus came to accomplish. So, first of all, in Hebrews 9, it says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, it seems like that's case closed. I agree with you. And I, I've heard that verse, and I've taught that verse many, many times. This idea that, well, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Case closed, right? 
what else can I say? It seems to be plain as day. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But there is more to that verse and to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and the topic of blood sacrifice than most Christians really ever understand. In fact, there's a lot more. So let's start with that verse. And if we do, we take this idea as a much larger train of thought that the author of Hebrews wants to develop. So let's just pull back a little and look at the entire section as a whole. And if we do, we'll notice that this passage in Hebrews 9 is talking about what was required under the Old Covenant law. In fact, the entire book of Hebrews, if you've ever read it or studied it, you'll notice it's constantly contrasting the Old Covenant law with the better covenant or the new covenant, that the Old Covenant had flaws and that the new covenant is all about mercy and love and grace. And so that's very important for us to pay attention to and to notice. In fact, if you back up one more chapter in chapter 8, the author of Hebrews starts this whole process of contrasting what he says in Hebrews 8, 7 is, quote, what was wrong with the first covenant. That's something we can't miss in this whole conversation. So if in Hebrews 8, the author says, hey, there was something wrong with the first covenant. Then later on, when he says, hey, under the old covenant, Without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sins, and this was this requirement was in the Old Covenant. And that's why he says it that way, right? Hebrews 9.22 then says, in fact, the law, that's the Old Covenant, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so the point that the author of Hebrews wants to make is what was necessary under the law, but he's going to contrast that. And in context, he's intending this to be a critique of the law and the Old Covenant, not an affirmation that it's a good thing. So before we go any further, we should stop and point out that the Old Covenant isn't of one mind or even one voice on the topic of blood sacrifice. So yes, we do see that Moses says that God commanded his people to offer blood sacrifices in Exodus 3.18 and in Exodus 20.24. But it's really difficult to read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and not come across dozens of references to sacrifices of all kinds and types, right, that are commanded by God, according to Moses. And then you see that also then reinforced in, in the books of Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, and others. However, when we come to Isaiah and the book of Hosea, and when we see what King David says in the Psalms, we suddenly uncover a very different perspective on this question of animal sacrifices. So in Jeremiah 7, 22 and 23, God says this, I gave your ancestors no commands about burnt offerings or any other kinds of sacrifices when I brought them out of Egypt. But I did command them to obey me, so that I would be their God and they would be my people. Now that's a shocking statement. In Micah 6, starting in verse 6, we read this. What shall I bring to the Lord, the God of heaven, when I come to worship him? Shall I bring the best calves to burn as offerings to him? Will the Lord be pleased if I bring him thousands of sheep or endless streams of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn child to pay for my sins? No. The Lord has shown us what is good. What he requires of us is this, to do what is just, to show constant love, and to live in humble fellowship with our God. Wow. Well, what, then no sacrifice at all in, in Micah 6 and verses 6 through 8. Let's keep reading in Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 11. We read this. God says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Stop bringing me your meaningless sacrifices. Wow, 
Okay, let's also read in Psalms 50, starting in verse 7. And it says this, Listen, my people, I am speaking. Israel, I am testifying against you. I, God, your God, I am not rebuking you for your sacrifices. Your burnt offerings are always before me. I have no need for a bull from your farm or for male goats from your pens. For all forest creatures are mine already, as are the animals on a thousand hills. I know all the birds in the mountains. Whatever moves in the fields is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and everything in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer thanksgiving as your sacrifice to God. Pay your vows to the Most High and call on me when you are in trouble. Psalm 51 and verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice, O Lord, or I would bring it to you. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart to you. Hosea chapter 6, starting in verse 6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Going back to Psalms 40 and verse 6. Sacrifices and grain offerings you don't want. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not demand. So, that's a different perspective on sacrifice, isn't it? And so, if the Old Testament isn't of one mind on it, then we need to sort of break the tie or understand what is really going on. So now, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 4. And it says this, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So now, there's a lot right there that I just read, but we're going to break it down. And if you're, I would encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 4 through verse 10, and notice these things in what I just read. Number one, the blood sacrifice never took away anybody's sin. Number two, Christ affirms that God did not desire sacrifice and offerings. Number three, God doesn't desire burnt or sin offerings at all. Number four, Christ came to do God's will. Number five, that will was not about blood or sacrifices or sin offerings. Next, we see that sacrifices and sin offerings were, quote, offered according to the Old Covenant Law. We see that the Old Covenant Law was a defective covenant. That's in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7 and 13. Next, we see Christ did away with the first covenant. In fact, it says that the Old Covenant is done away with in order to establish a better and a new covenant. Hebrews eight thirteen, we see that when Christ submitted to the will of God, it was to fulfill the law and the prophets thereby making them obsolete. If you can follow the train of thought, then the next part is much easier to understand. Because now that we understand that God never wanted blood sacrifice, that those sacrifices never took away anyone's sins, and what we saw from the Old Testament, God says through many of his prophets, he never even commanded sacrifice in the first place. 
So now we can see that God's will was about something else, something not related to offering any sacrifices for sin. Not at all. But it's about fulfilling the Old Covenant to establish the New Covenant. We might talk about that a little bit later. But just continuing our train of thought. So our sanctification is established, quote, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's Hebrews 10.10. But we must be very careful not to slip back into blood sacrifice thinking here. The idea of the offering of the body of Jesus is not affirming the very notion we just spent so much time unpacking in the verses above. If the offering of the body of Jesus is not a picture of Jesus being sacrificed to appease God's wrath or fulfill God's justice, what is it? Well, I would suggest, and I think the author of Hebrews suggests, that it is a picture of Christ's obedience to the will of God, which we remember is not about sacrifice. As Hosea said it, and as Jesus repeated, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy is expressed in the way we love one another. What God requires of us is that we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. That's Micah 6, 8. God does not want our sacrifice. God wants us to love one another. How did Jesus respond to the greatest commandments, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus gives us what he says is a new command, that we would love one another in the same way that he loved us. That's what it's about. And so the offering of the body of Jesus, as it mentions it here in Hebrews, is best described in Philippians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul shows us a clear picture of just how much Jesus really sacrificed, and that sacrifice started at the Incarnation, not at the Crucifixion. Philippians chapter 2, and verse 5. Consider Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus laid down his life for us by letting go of his glorified status to empty himself. And by taking the form of a servant, he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. So his sacrifice for us was in the manner in which he emptied himself and offered his entire life to us as the one who did not come to be served, but to serve all of humanity. This is what the offering of the body of Jesus is referring to in Hebrews 10.10. Not a lamb being put to death on a cross, but when Christ lets go of his divinity, his identity, his connection with God, and says, I'm going to humble myself, I'm going to empty myself, I'm going to become a human being, I'm going to become nothing. This answers the question, why did Jesus have to die? And quite often when people ask me this question, Keith, why did Jesus have to die? I will ask them the question, And I would ask you the same question right now. Why do you have to die? Now, if you think about that for a second, why do you have to die? Well, I think your immediate response would be something like, well, because I'm a human being. I'm mortal. Exactly. And when Jesus took on flesh in the incarnation and became a human being, a little baby, first in the womb of his mother and then in her arms and then becomes a small child and lives a life just the way we did, That act of the incarnation, of letting go of immortality to take on mortality, to take on flesh, that right there is the reason why Jesus had to die. Because he now suddenly had taken on an identity of mortality where death was inevitable. 
just like it's inevitable for you and I. So there's a lot more we could say about this, but I don't want to get bogged down too much in all this stuff. Let me just jump ahead a little bit here and talk about the ways in which Christ incarnation, his life, and yes, his crucifixion and his resurrection, what it really means for us as individuals and as humanity. So I think this is something really important. Because in the incarnation, Jesus took on flesh, and this was not merely about his own personal humanity. It was a symbol of God's solidarity with all mankind. In Christ, we see both God and humanity at the same time. My friend Brad Jerzak, I'm going to quote from him, he says it this way, Christ did not just take on an individual human nature of his own, that Christ assumed human nature, all of humanity, so that as in Adam all, so in Christ all. He united with all in his birth and life, so that he united with all in his death and resurrection. In rising, he raises all humanity with himself. And so the glorious reality for us now that Christ has made possible through his complete fulfillment of the law and the transformation of humanity through himself is that we are new creations. As Paul says, the old has gone, behold, all things have been made new in 2 Corinthians 5.17. So again, the crucial reality of the incarnation is this, Jesus and humanity are one in the very same way that Jesus and the Father are one. To deny one is in fact to deny the other. Either Jesus and the Father are one, and therefore Jesus and humanity are one, or Jesus is not one with the Father, and they are not one with us. But Jesus, remember, told us in John fourteen twenty, in that day you shall know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So there is a connection that cannot be broken between God, God in the flesh, which is Jesus, and us. And because of that connection, things that are true of Christ are now true of us. Paul repeats this over and over again, where Paul will say, because Christ died, all died. Because Christ has risen, all have been risen. Because Christ is exalted to the right hand of the Father, we are all seated in the heavenly places with Christ, as he says in Ephesians. And so, understanding that that's what's happening, Baxter Kruger says it this way, that Christ's oneness with his Father and the Holy Spirit and his oneness with us in our humanity in darkness and with creation in its brokenness form the non-negotiable reality that we ignore to our peril. Jesus' very existence is the ground and grammar of theology, both the possibility and the inner logic of authentic thought about God and divine relations with humanity. We dare not say a word to anybody anywhere that betrays this Jesus Christ and the reality established in him. Failure here is not simply a theological mistake. It is to consign ourselves to ourselves. It is to limit our hearts to try to thrive on our own speculation. And no matter how we dress it up with solemn religious words spoken in hushed tones while wearing holy vestments, speculation is speculation. Always devoid of authority, vacuous of weight before the hurting soul. Or maybe to put it in a much simpler way, Christ is all and is in all. Colossians 3.11 And because of this truth, the crucifixion was God's subversive plan to transform our wrath against God into the means of our liberation, reconciliation, and salvation from the bondage of sin and death. I hope it's helpful, at least, to kind of get us thinking about the different ways that we approach this idea of the incarnation, the life of Christ, the crucifixion, the resurrection, what was going on on the cross. And I know we've really only barely scratched the surface here in this episode. There are many other questions that we probably need to explore 
And in fact, I think it's worthy of doing a separate podcast specifically on this question of the ways in which Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. And what is going on when the author of Hebrews says not only that the Old Covenant had flaws and that there was something wrong with that Old Covenant, but what does it mean to say the scandalous thing that the author of Hebrews says, which is that the Old Covenant is now obsolete? Because that can really be very shocking to many of us as Christians who are constantly told that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant exist simultaneously side by side, rather than this radical idea that is put forth in the book of Hebrews, and is, by the way, very strongly emphasized and affirmed in the writings of Paul, which is the idea that the New Covenant has now superseded the Old Covenant, that the Old Covenant brought sin and death, but that the New Covenant, through Christ, brings us grace and truth. And many of us as, as Christians, we we are very confused about that. Most of the teaching we've received from the pulpit or in Sunday schools, or in Bible studies, or things like this, have actually told us the opposite. We've been told that the opposite is true. And so, I think we'll deal with that in our next episode, just to dig a little deeper into this question of what's really going on, how do we understand the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But in general, just to wrap it up, I hope we can at least agree that Jesus did not die to save us from God. That's not what the Scriptures tell us. What we are told is that Jesus came to save us from our sins. And I would affirm that, yes, that is exactly what Jesus does do, but maybe not in the ways that we think. Maybe not because God demands blood, sacrifice, something innocent and virgin that must be killed so that his anger can be satisfied, his wrath can be satisfied, and now, and only now, can God offer us love and acceptance and forgiveness. In fact, this idea of penal substitutionary atonement theory has this additional sort of component to it that says that God's wrath demands some sort of satisfaction and some sort of a payment, right? There is there is this idea in penal substitutionary atonement theory that the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, the suffering of Christ offers some sort of a payment. And the problem with that, well, there's a couple of problems. <laughs> Number one, the question immediately should be, who's getting paid? Is God getting paid back? Was God owed something, or is it Satan that was owed something? God owed Satan something? That seems a little strange also. And here's the other thing. If anybody, if anyone, whether it's God or Satan or death or Lady Justice or whatever it happens to be, if on the cross what's happening is that someone is getting paid, well then, that's not really forgiveness, is it? Think about it this way. If you owe me $20 and somebody else gave me $20 to pay back your debt, I really don't get to tell you I've forgiven your debt because I got paid. The debt was paid. Therefore, it's not forgiveness of the debt. I received my payment. One of my favorite theologians, David Bentley Hart, he puts it this way. Penal substitutionary atonement is rather like a bank issuing itself credit to pay off a debt it owes itself. Using a currency, it is minted for the occasion and certifying its value wholly on the basis of the very credit it is issuing to itself. I believe penal substitutionary atonement theory is not only not the gospel, it's a very late theory in the 1500s presented by John Calvin. It takes the atonement into a legal framework because John Calvin was trained as a lawyer. And I understand in one sense, it is doing its best to make sense of some aspects of the atonement or the the crucifixion, what's happening on the cross. But that's what all atonement theories are doing. At best, all of them are metaphors. 
There are ways of trying to understand it's sort of like this or it's sort of like that. And in maybe in some senses, each of these six or seven different atonement theories that are out there might do a good job of working as a metaphor to help us wrap our minds around some aspect of the crucifixion. But none of them as metaphors should ever be taken literally or on their own as separate from the others. This is, I think, the huge mistake we've made in modern times, is embracing this atonement theory, again, which showed up in the 1500s, repackaging that as the gospel, as the only way of thinking about what's happening on the cross, especially in light of all the things we've just looked at. The fact that God doesn't demand sacrifice, the blood of bulls and goats never take away sins. God did not desire any of those things. In fact, says he never even wanted or commanded those things ever. And so, It's very necessary for us to stop and rethink what is happening on the cross. Who is God? Is God the angry volcano God whose wrath and anger needs to be appeased so he can love us? Or is God like Jesus, a God who whose response to sin is instant, automatic forgiveness, no matter what, even if we don't even ask for the forgiveness? The verse that I repeat all the time is 2 Corinthians 5.19, For God was in Christ, not counting our sins against us, but reconciling the world to himself. This is what Christ has done. This is what Jesus has accomplished. And the bottom line is that no matter how you try to make sense of the cross and what this does and what that does and how this works, the bottom line is really that. God was in Christ, not counting our sins against us. One way or the other, we have to rest on that, that according to God, as far as God is concerned, he keeps no record of wrongs, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, that God's response to our sin is to surely not count our sins against us. It's forgiveness that we're offered, and that's what we have right now. We have received forgiveness. The world has been reconciled to God, and that's what we need to celebrate. That's the truth we need to live in and walk in on a daily basis. And I hope that that's what we can do as we learn to rethink the cross and the character and nature of God as revealed through Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I want to quickly also invite everybody to join me for Square One. If you are deconstructing your faith and you're really feeling a need for connection, you feel isolated, alone, you have anxiety about this, maybe the pain of deconstruction, because it is painful, is something you really need some help processing. I have a wonderful community of people who would love to surround you and embrace you and come around you. People who have walked through this just the way you have, some of them much farther down the road, some of them kind of just right where you are, maybe a few of them just barely beginning the process. But wherever you find yourself in the deconstruction process, Square One is a course, an online course, and a thriving community of people who are going through deconstruction and moving towards reconstruction of their faith. This is a 12-week online course and community that I put together. Our next session will begin in February the 14th on Valentine's Day, 2022. I would just invite you to join us for this course if this sounds like something that would be helpful to you. It's So far, it's helped over 100 people to do exactly that. I'm offering a discount of 75% off the regular cost of registering for Square One. You can find information about that at my blog, keithgiles.com. Or if you like, you can go straight to the website, bk2sq1.com. But if you want the 75% discount, 
You can find a link to that discount on my Facebook, Twitter pages, as well as on keithjaws.com at my blog. And I would love to meet you there. And then quickly, I also have an event coming up in March in Nashville called Awaken 2022. This will be an event dedicated to helping us process our deconstruction and reconstruction. Jim Palmer, Derek Webb, December Rose, Michelle Collins, Todd Vick, and Brandon Dragan will be joining us there. I would love to see you there for that event as well. And you can also find information about that and how to register for that event at KeithCharles.com. Thank you again so much for listening to Second Cup with Keith. I look forward to having a second cup with you again in the future. God bless. Take care.